Years ago, I read about a tree, a true story, a tree that had fallen over, and they counted the rings in it, which is how you know the age of the tree, and it was about 2,000 years old. And uh, what was interesting in this little article that I read was that they went back, and those that know how to do this, they could study each ring, and they could know what had happened, weather-wise and so forth, by looking at the rings of the tree. And there were certain years where the rings were larger and with the coloration and so forth, they knew that had been a very prosperous year. That was a year of great growth for the tree. There were other years when uh, the, the growth was very small and they surmised it probably lack of moisture that year. And they continued to look at this and study this and they found that uh, there was a year where there was a fire. They could tell that back uh, decades and decades ago. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And I got to thinking about the church. And, you know, when, uh, when the Lord looks back at the whole history from the time the church began until the end of time, it's kind of like those rings. And what we want to think about is in our lifetime, what's, what's the ring going to look like? And in the life and the history of this congregation, what will that what will that ring look like? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about this evening, and it comes from a, a very short, quick, fast-paced two verses in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul is writing here, of course, and he's just really, uh, it's like he snaps this out in a, in a very succinct way. And here's what he says in 13 and 14. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be strong. Be brave. Let all you do be done in love. And then he says in verse 13, as the King James Version renders it, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, and be strong. Pretty succinct, isn't it? Now these words come toward the end of his letter to the church at Corinth. As you know, if you studied 1 Corinthians, Paul corrects many Problems. He answers many questions in this book. And then he ends up and tells him, I want you to be strong. I want you to stand firm. And I want you to stand fast. I want you to be brave. And these words have the imagery of battle in them. They suggest war and conflict. And, and every word, it's vibrating in this exhortation. And in this strong appeal to the Christian... The Christian is to come to the defense of the gospel just as a general in an army would uh, call his soldiers to his side in a very needed time. Now, you know, it's, it's not a surprise, those of us that have read the Bible, as all of us have, no doubt, that the Christian life is compared to warfare or struggle, and every Christian is a soldier. This battle that we're fighting is a battle. It's, it's not a game, and we know that's true. Uh, years ago, I watched the, the old series, uh, Karate Kid. And I'll confess to you, I, I really liked that series for the most part. But one of the scenes that I liked was when Mr. Miyagi told Danielson, this no tournament, Danielson, this real thing. And I thought about that when it comes to the Christian. This is not a tournament. This is not a warm-up. This is the real thing. And the New Testament is filled with fighting terms. 
1 Timothy 1 and 8. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, uh, that by them you may wage a good warfare. 1 Timothy 6 and 12. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. 2 Timothy 2 and 3. You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You think about the life of a soldier. And it can be a life of hardship. And the Bible tells us we're to finish strong. 2 Timothy 4 and 7, I fought a good fight. I have finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Winston Churchill was said, was said he gave a speech at a graduation one time. Everybody was expecting an eloquent speech, and he got up in the speaker stand, and he told this graduating class, here was his speech. He said, never, 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 never give up. He paused. He walked away from the speaker stand, and that was the that was his speech. That's a pretty good speech <laughs> when you think about it. But what I want to do tonight, for a little while, in this study with you, is I want to look at these five commands that are found in the verses that we read in First Corinthians six uh, verses, or First Corinthians sixteen, rather. Verses 13 and 14. The first word is the word watch. I got to looking at that word in the original. Mr. Vine says that word means spiritual alertness. I want you to watch. Now Thayer would say give strict attention to and be cautious and, and active. So the word is a very power-packed word. It's kind of like 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6. Therefore let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be sober. So watch. Watch for the drifting characteristics of the unconcerned. Watch for the vile habits of the wicked. Watch for the irresponsible behavior of the wayward. Watch for the enemy's approach. Acts 20, uh, 26 through 31, Paul would remind them. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. So we have to have that spiritual alertness as a Christian. But number two, the word stand. He said, stand fast in the faith. Mr. Uh, Thayer says in the original, that means stand firm. The Christian is to stand firm in the faith and in what the word of God teaches. Defend the faith, aggressively fight error. Stand against wavering and drifting and being tossed about. It, Paul reminded us of that in Ephesians 4, that we be not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 15, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught, whether by word or epistle. So that's number two. There's five phrases. Look at the third one. And notice this one. He says, be brave. That's the New King James. In the, the King James Version, it really is an interesting word. And I, growing up, I didn't know what it meant. You know, you grow up, I grew up on the King James Version. And uh, I'd spend, when I started preaching, a lot of my preaching defining words. <laughs> because a lot of those words we don't use anymore. So he said, quit ye like men. And I used to think, well, what in the world does that mean? You know? But it's really interesting when you look at it. Quit ye like men. Mr. Vine said that means signifies to make a man of, to play the man, 
Peter says to show oneself a man or to be brave is the point. So the idea is act like a man. Behave like a man. In other words, be courageous in the Lord's service, in the Lord's work, in your steadfastness, standing firm in the gospel. Perform like a noble, worthy soldier. Demonstrate your maturity, your courage, your dedication, and never succumb to the childish behaviors and actions of the immature. You know, we need men and women like that in the church today, don't we? Just setting a consistent example that others can follow. I, I was, as I was studying this, I came across something interesting. There was a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a British clergyman uh, to his friend Nicholas Ridley as they were both about to be burned as heretics for their teachings and beliefs. And this occurred back on October 16, 1555, during the reign of Mary I of England. You remember her? Bloody Mary, they called her. So when they're just about to be burned, here is what uh, Hugh Latimer said to his friend, uh, Master Ridley. He said this, he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's courage, isn't it? When you're about to be burned at the stake and to come up with something like that. So the Bible says, quit your acting, or, or be a man, and be strong, be courageous. The next one, number four that Paul uses, is the phrase, be strong. And Mr. Thayer says that means to increase in strength. Are to grow strong. Now, we each have a responsibility to grow. And I cannot pass that responsibility on to anyone else. Now, other people can help me grow. Other people can encourage my growth. But it really is up to me to make the decision that I want to grow, right? And that you want to grow. It's my personal responsibility that I have years that you have. And that's why Jude said in Jude 20 and 21, I like how he puts this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. I have a responsibility to make the decision that I'm going to grow. You know, uh, I was looking at Michael's library today, and he said, here's one you might recognize, and he pulled out Parables of Jesus by Wayne King. Had the privilege of uh, publishing that book for many years ago. But he gave those sermons in Wichita, Kansas when I was a very young man. Uh, twelve, I believe there's twelve parables in that book. And those were his sermons, word for word almost, in the book. Now, what's interesting is, he said something that night, I was probably in my twenties at the time when that meeting was held. And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, make up your mind right now that you're here to stay. Make up your mind right now. There will never be a time in my life when I'm not a member of the Lord's church, that I'm not faithful, and get that concrete in your mind. I mean, we need people like that. You know, there's people that wander in and out. You don't know if they're here to stay or not. But he said, just make up your mind right now. I here to stay. And I thought that was great advice. 
our early uh, life that. And so we have that obligation to be strong, to grow in the faith. So here's a couple of reflection questions I came up with. I like reflection questions for myself and for others. Number one, what am I doing right now to grow in my faith and to grow spiritually? It's a pretty good one for you to think about. What am I doing? Am I reading my Bible every day? Do I have set times where I pray? You know, these are things that can help me grow in the Word. Do I consistently participate in the services of the church? Like the Bible teaches in Hebrews 10, you know, don't forsake the assembly, but it says encourage one another daily. Do I maintain good works? You know, have you ever noticed Titus has a theme in it of good works? I missed that for years, but over and over, Titus talks about that, that we've got to constantly be involved in good works. He says in 2 and 7, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Chapter 3 and 8, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And then chapter 3 and 14, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs. Have you ever noticed that over and over? Maintain good works. You know, stay involved. You know, we had a sister in Wichita that tell her children, if you're down and depressed, she'd say, go out and help somebody and they'll, they'll pick you up. And boy, she was a worker constantly. The Bible says in the Old Testament, you know, he that encourages others or refreshes others will himself be refreshed or encouraged. It's a wonderful thing. When you pour yourself out to someone else, you kind of stop worrying about your own and so the good medicine is to be involved with others. Well, Paul gives all those commands, and then he kind of sums it up, and he says, let everything you do be done in love. All those military terms, and then he kind of ends it up with love. You know, the Bible says that without love, we're nothing. Without love, we're nothing. Some of you may have heard, I know some of you, heard of Miles Keene. I don't know how many of you heard him preach. But at Sulphur one year, he said, without love, you're nothing. He said, we've all seen a gnat's bristle. There's not much there. But he said, without love, you're not even a gnat's bristle. Now, if you know Miles, that's, that's hilarious. You're not even a gnat's bristle. You're nothing. Not even that little tiny bit. Well, it's absolutely true because uh, 1 John 3 and 18 says, Dear children, let us love, not in words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. To have a genuine love for one another is what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 when he said, Above all things. What could he be getting ready to say? Above all things. He said, Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover over someone, you overlook faults. You overlook problems. I was in Arkansas one time, and, and I remember talking to a brother. We were driving along. He was in his pickup truck, and I was holding the lead, young preacher. And I was aware of a situation, a marriage situation, which was getting tense. And I asked him, how would you advise this couple? 
kind of explained the friction. And he asked me something that totally confused me. He said, do you know anything about engines? And I said, well, not much. He said, well, you know, engines, they've got all this metal and they're, they're working real close together. And the pistons are moving and all these moving parts. And he said, when you get all those moving parts like that with metal, he said, it creates what's called friction. And he said, what you have to do in an automobile is put oil in the engine to eliminate the friction. And he said, Bob, he said, love is the Lord. All he said, like to God. Well, that's the best thing I've heard all, all year. You know, when you're working in a situation very closely with people, definitely married, relationships with children, grandchildren, preachers and congregations, and there's said something says something very sharp to me and very hurtful and I have love and compassion and pouring on the oil love overlooks or covers a multitude of sins I think that's absolutely wonderful you know sometimes you got to stand alone when it comes to battle you know the Bible says in Exodus 23 and 2 you shall not follow a crowd to do evil nor shall you testify in a dispute to turn aside after many to pervert justice. There are times when if you're the only one standing, you're willing to stand. Henry Clay said, I'd rather be right than be present. I like that. Sometimes people are afraid to express the truth on an issue for fear of being rejected or Fear of offending someone. But I'd rather be right than liked. And I'd rather be right than be popular. And someone said this. I came across it in my studies. When 40 million people believe in a dumb idea, it's still a dumb idea. <laughs> it's still dumb. Don't care how many people believe it. Now, there's no place in the kingdom for a coward or a weakling an apologist or a compromiser of the truth, read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story. And they said, throw us in the fire if you want. We're, we're not kneeling. We're not going to bow before your image. They told King Nebuchadnezzar. I was inspired when I read, some of you like history, I know, and uh, you've heard of Joan of Arc in history, right? The courageous woman, Joan of Arc. And I was so inspired when I read the story on her. Someone asked her if she was going to wage the battle against the enemy. And they said, well, well, who will lead the battle? And she said, I'll lead it. And they said, they will not follow you. And she said, I will not be looking back to see whether they're following me or not. <laughs> that's bravery. And that's courage. That's an attitude we have to have at times that I'm going to do the right thing whether anybody's following or not. We have to ask, what's the right thing to do? There was a preacher in Arkansas that uh, that had built a uh, 
searched there many, many, many years and uh, had a reputation of really being a model church. And someone asked him one time before he died, they said, what, what has made this, this is such a great church in so many ways, what's made it so great? And he said, it's not the building, it's not the organization, though that's good, you know, it's not a lot of things, he said, if it, if it has any greatness at all, it's because of this. When things got really, really hard, he said, we refused to quit. And that's a lesson, isn't it? Because sometimes things get hard in congregations. But that refusal to quit. You know, I don't read a lot of poetry in my lessons, but I'm going to read something tonight because it inspired me. I think I've got a license to do it because Paul quoted poetry there in the book of Acts, you know, Acts 17. As some of your own poet, poets have said, we are his offspring. So mine's a little longer than Paul's quote, but there's a, there's a little poem. I made a copy of it where I could share it with you. And I can't read this without feeling inspired but it's worth the read. It was called The Race. And as I read this, there's times I've read it at Congress. I did it at Auburn one time. And there's times when I get a little emotional in it because it's so meaningful to me. But it really speaks. And as I read this little poem, the whole point of it is never give up. And I think this is a good encouragement to the church here. But when I talk about the Father and the stands, sun looking up. I want you to think of, every time you hear that in this little poem, I want you to think of our, our Father in Heaven in the stands. And our lives, okay? And then he'll hint more to you. But here's the way the poem went. It was written many years ago. And some of you have heard me probably. Quit! Give up! You're beaten! They shout at me and plead. There's just too much against you now. This time you cannot succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene. For just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, now I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope. Each thought to win that race, or tie for first, if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son. Each boy hoped to show his dad that he had been the one. The whistle blew and off they went, young hearts and hopes afire. To win, to be the hero there was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, running near the head and thought my dad will be so proud and as they speeded down the field across a shallow dip the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped trying hard to catch himself his hands flew out to brace and mid the laughter of the crowd he fell flat on his face so down he fell weak and hope he couldn't win it now and there is sad he only wished to disappear somehow 
as he fell, his dad stood up and showed him his face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up, win the race. He looked and goes, no damage done, a bit behind, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall, so anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, time went faster than his legs and slipped and fell again. He wished then he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd he searched, found his father's face. That steady look that said again, get up, win the race. He jumped to try again, 10 yards behind the last. Time to gain those yards, he thought. I've really got to move real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he gained back eight or 10, but trying so to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. And lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense in running more. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind. So error prone. A loser all the way. I was. So what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad who soon he'd have to face. Get up. An echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant to failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will. Get up, it said. You haven't lost it all. For winning is no more than this to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more and with a new commit. He resolved that win or lose, at least he would not quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran so to win. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line first place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. Even though he came in last, with head bowed low, I'm proud. You would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I, I didn't do so well. Today you won, the father said. You rose each time you fell. Well, I like that, and I hope you do. It inspires me, and uh, it's a good reminder for me because we all fall, and we mess up. Sometimes we mess up of our own volition, and uh, we have to get right back up and refuse to quit. And that, that's not applicable to the church and to each Christian today. I don't know what is. It's very applicable. So I want to conclude with a story out of the Old Testament. And uh, before we conclude, uh, Edmund Burke once said, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. So we have to do something. Take a stand as a man, <clears throat> the leaders of our homes and our families. Take a stand as a woman. Be the leader 
uh, in our circles of influence and so forth. So I'm going to conclude with a story that comes out of uh, the book of Judges, chapter 7. You know, back in chapter 6 and 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord had delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now, if you go to chapter 7, and I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, share that with you, and then we're going to be done. But I'm in Judges chapter 7. We're going to find something really interesting here. Because the Bible says that uh, they were getting ready to go to battle. And the Lord said to Gideon in verse 2, we have this multitude of people ready to go to battle. And the Lord said, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. And lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, Thy own hand has saved me. Now the Lord has a reputation here. He is God. And he wants to get the victory. Uh, but he wants the glory to be. And he wants people to know, and I'm preaching to myself right now, God did this. You know, there's things and times in my life where I realize the only hope I've got is if God comes through. You ever been there? You know? If God doesn't come through, then this is not going to work out. It's not going to be pretty. And so then when God comes through, it's like, hallelujah. You know? The Lord did this. Well, that's what God said here. I'm not going to do this with all these 22,000 men you've got, or more than that. Uh, you're going to have to send some of them home. Or you're going to say, well, my own hand did this. So... Therefore, he said, let anyone that's afraid and fearful turn around and depart at once. 22,000 people returned and left. I wonder what, I wonder what old Gideon's thinking here. Uh, and only 10,000 people remained. Well, maybe he thought, well, 10,000, you know, that's okay. I think I can do this still. And God said, you still got too many. Okay. You got too many. You're going to have to thin it out more. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. You know the story. He said, I want to test them. And he said, here's what you're going to do. Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, verse 5, as a dog laps, set him apart by himself. But everybody who gets down on his knees to drink, he said, send them home. He's got 10,000 people. So he's watching. And those that reached over and their hand and got their drink like that. And he says, it laps like a dog. He said, you put them over here. If they get out on their knees to drink, he said, just send them on here. You know how many were left out of 10,000 drinking? 300. 300 people. And uh, the rest were sent home. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hands. You know, that night, of course, God said, if you're afraid, you go down to the camp and listen to what those enemies are saying. And he did, and he heard them talking about, I just had a vision, and, and this, this horrible thing happened. And the other guy said, that was nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel, into his hand, God has delivered enemies were saying this. And so he felt so courageous, even with 300 men, that God has set us up for him. So, uh, you know, sometimes 
we fall down. Sometimes things don't go like we plan. But with God's help, we have the victory. And that's the point on the lesson this evening. Hope it's been helpful to you.